It's good to have you with us this morning at the NEI campus of Blue Valley. Hope everybody has had a good but soggy morning. Uh, you were able to make it in, and, uh, you know, I always understood that sugar melted in the rain, so I'll just let that be that, that you were able to make it in here today. In a few weeks, we'll get the privilege of having our grandkids in for the July 4th holiday. Uh, also, also our kids and their spouses are coming. But uh, our grandkids will be here, and it's always exciting to welcome our grandkids and also their parents and uh, their spouses to our home. But there is a little extra juice to it this year because uh, this will be the first time that we will have hosted our little brood in our new home. So we have been busy readying the place for June and Judson and the other people who will come. But... In the Lynch family, perhaps the most important of preparations when family gets together are the meals. Meal plans are very, very important. A family being together, especially at this time in our lives, all of us being able to be together at the same time, is, is uh, not a, a common occasion. And so no ordinary meal will do. We, when we get together, want to make sure that our meals feed the celebration and that's not unusual to our family, unique to us or anybody else's, because meals, since time began, have become central, almost synonymous with celebrations. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all that uh, the celebrations, the most important of them in the Old Testament, are called feasts. There are, in fact, in the Old Testament, seven feast celebrations that the people were to observe when they came together. And they're all very important and all serve very unique purposes, but really focus on celebrating a, a common faith in God and a common understanding of God and a common experience with God. So uh, the purposes of these feasts ended up being communal and memorial and theological. But there is a one-off feast in the Old Testament that, frankly, is unlike any other feast that has ever occurred since time began. It is uh, an extraordinary thing, and we'll look at it in our passage from Exodus this morning. So if you brought your Bibles, and I hope you did, if you would please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. Today, I want you to make sure this is absurd what I'm about to say. Today, we are going to see the leadership of Israel sit down and have a meal with God, a meal with God. The meal actually doesn't take place until the end of our section of Scripture today, but everything that we will see today builds toward it, and I hope you found Exodus 23. We'll begin in verse 20. Just follow along as I read. God speaks here. He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. He's speaking of the promised land. And then he says, Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now, it's important here to grasp and to not miss that the angel being spoken of in ways that are really probably all but impossible for us to grasp fully this side of eternity, is God himself. The fact that they are one and the same is made clear in verse 22 where the angel's voice and God commanding that they do all that I say is viewed synonymously. No rebellion against him would be 
permitted, but faithful obedience to him would open up to the people of Israel the full provision of God's promised land and all of its attendant blessings, which are detailed, delineated as you go through the verses that close out chapter 23. Then we come to an event that is so rich in meaning that the New Testament author of Hebrews actually calls his readers to remember it. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 1 of Exodus 24. Then he, God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Now, you'll remember that this is the pattern that the people of Israel themselves have asked for. After the Ten Commandments were given, in the presence of all of the people, God thundering from Mount Sinai, and the people of Israel hearing the Ten spoken to Moses, they go to Moses and say, that was not cool, scared us to death. And from now on, what we want you to do is talk to him for us and tell us what he says. We're afraid, literally, that we will die if this experience happens to us again. And so in verse 3, Moses is doing this, and he reports back what he has heard. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, this is kind of compressing, kind of telescoping a lot of different time and events, but, but really what Moses is coming back and reporting to the people of Israel is the content of what we read from uh, chapter 22, verse 20, through the end of chapter 23. And so Moses is reporting back to them, and the people are agreeing that they will do the Ten Commandments and the content of what Moses has heard in uh, 22 and 23. They are agreeing again to do what they agreed to do before God ever showed up in Exodus chapter 19. But then I want you to see what happens. So Moses has reported all of this, and look at verse 5. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Now, there's a lot of very, very rich imagery there that we need to make sure that we grasp. Two specific offerings are mentioned. One is a burn offering. One is a peace offering. Actually, we will spend a little more detail and a little more time doing that. We're having a four-week series of messages at the end of the summer, right after Exodus, that will cover the book of Leviticus. And then everybody at Blue Valley went, yay. <laughs> Hang on, it'll be good. It'll be all right. But we'll talk about those offerings there. The, the, the offerings uh, communicate two different things. The burnt offering was the only offering that was offered almost completely in its entirety back to God. So the animal was sacrificed, everything but the hide was then placed on the altar, and the entire thing went up in flames before God until nothing but ashes remained. And it was meant to symbolize, communicate wholeheartedly 
wholehearted commitment to the Lord. In other words, this is an, a symbolic representation of my entire life being lifted up as an offering to the Lord. That's what the burnt offering meant. But there was also an aspect of the burnt offering which communicated that one could make that offering, that kind of wholehearted commitment to the Lord, because of the, the blood that had been shed. And so the blood shed was used as a component of that offering as well that went up to the Lord, and it communicated the idea that I can give myself to the Lord because my, my sins have been forgiven through the shed blood. And then on the, basis, on the basis of that experience, on the basis of having my sins atoned for through the, the sacrifice, through the, the shedding of blood then I am able to have the most intimate kind of relationship with God. And that is symbolized by the peace offering. The peace offering was meant to symbolize, and, and this is really important to grasp, it was meant to symbolize a meal with God, a meal with God. And in other words, because the blood has been shed for me, that has allowed me, to be able to have this kind of relationship with God, which was not possible before because of my sin, I can have the most intimate kind of relationship with, with another human being apart from the marriage covenant. I can, I can sit down for a meal. Now, meals are important to us, right? I mean, when we want to spend time with people in a really kind of personal intimate way, we want to have them uh, for a meal at our house or to go out to eat or to go to their house. We want to have a meal with them. That is what meals are meant to communicate. So what the people of Israel are being invited to have in light of the forgiveness of their sin is a meal with God. And here's how a peace offering worked. The very best part of the sacrifice, and it's delineated in Leviticus, which again, you can't wait to hear from us in just a little over a month. The very best parts of that sacrifice are given to God, and that is his portion of the meal. And then what was left was prepared for the offerer, and they would eat, and that would be their part of the meal with God. So it symbolized having a meal with God. And the basis, again, of all of it is the shed blood. The blood has been shed that is atoned for and is covered for my, my sin, and therefore I am able to have a, an intimate relationship with God. But then undergirding all of that is what made it possible in the first place, the grace of God. I want you to look back at verse 8. It says there, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, that sounds gross and grotesque in our day and age. I mean, literally no one would show up for church service if I said, what I'm going to do today is wear this shirt and throw blood on you. You would not show up for it. But what it's meant to communicate is that God has done for you all that is necessary for you to have a relationship with him. And it's communicated in the very words that are spoken. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made in accordance with these words. It was not the people of Israel who 
managed to free themselves from slavery and Egypt. It was God who had done that. It was not the people of Israel who defeated the armies of Pharaoh at the Red Sea. It was God who had done that. It was not the people of Israel who surmised we should go to a mountain in the wilderness and meet God. It was God who called them there. And so the, the, the underpinnings of this amazing and intimate relationship that the people of God were able to now have because of the shed blood of sacrifice, the underpinnings of all of that was grace. God in His grace had made this kind of relationship possible. And then the splendors of that grace are on full display in the next verses. Look at verse 9. This will blow your mind if you can just disconnect a little bit that you've heard it before and just read it for the first time like you were reading it for the first time. Verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire, stone like the very heavens for clearness. And he, God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They had a meal with God. What the peace offerings had symbolized for the people, the leadership of Israel got to experience in a more tangible way. And it's all because of grace. We see in the words that I just read that they had this experience and God did not lay a hand on them. He, he did not demand their life from them because they had seen something so holy. Now, to be sure, they're only seeing a shadow of the splendor of the grace of God. They're not seeing the, the full glory of everything. That's not a survival, survivable event. But it's also not survivable to just see the shadow of God's glory. And by His grace, He is allowing them to have this kind of experience so that it would prove to them His reality and His presence with them. And from there, God calls Moses onto the mountain for a supernatural experience lasting 40 days and 40 nights where more instruction is given and where the tablets of the Ten Commandments are given for the first time. See, everybody that's watched the movie thinks that the, the tablets were given when, when Moses heard them for the first time. But if you know your Bible, if you've paid attention, they're just spoken in Exodus 20. It's not inscribed by the finger of God on tablets until this supernatural experience with God. But this supernatural experience that Moses is having with God is also going to prove itself to be a real test of just how obedient the people are willing to be and just kind of, uh, spoiler alert, not very. Uh, we'll see that happen in just a few weeks. So we've just seen one of the most extraordinary events in Exodus, one of the most extraordinary events in the Bible to be sure. People sitting down for a meal with God. But more importantly, I hope we've seen the grace of God that made such a meal and such fellowship possible. Today we come to another meal with God, made possible by the grace of God, a meal we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And it was Pastor Micah at the Ridgeview campus who noticed the similarities between what we read in Exodus 23 and 24 
and communion. And that led us to reschedule communion, which would have normally been last week, to take place this week. And like the people of ancient Israel, we come to this table made possible by grace in celebration as people saved by grace should come to this table in celebration. In so doing, as God's people, we gather for this meal in celebration of first God's providence. God's providence. We are told at the end of Exodus 23 that the Lord was going to go before the people of Israel. He would be an enemy to their enemies and an adversary to their adversary. And as, a, as the portion of the passage we didn't read says, he would be the one who would bless their bread and their water and their wombs and their bodies. God's people only needed to remain obedient and behold what the Lord would do. And that really is the framework of the book of Joshua. When the people are obedient, God is their warrior. And when they are not, they do not experience the blessings that he would have for him. This providence, God going before his people, is seen most clearly in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 tells us that Jesus has gone before us, before the very foundations of the world, to provide for us the salvation that so many of us in this room enjoy here today. So when we come to the Lord's table in communion, we celebrate that providence, that God going before us. But we also celebrate God's forgiveness in Christ. I mentioned earlier that the people of Israel enjoyed fellowship with God on the basis of blood that was shed in sacrifice. And I also mentioned to you that the event as it is recounted in the book of Exodus is remembered by the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 of that book. And in verses 18 through 22, we read these words. And, and I think you'll be able to see the connection to the event that we just read. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. He's speaking of what we read about here today. For when, the, when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and the water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has commanded for you. In that same way, he sprinkled with blood the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Now he's looking ahead to something that we'll come to in the coming weeks. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And you don't have to come to church very long to know that that is indeed the case. But then he goes on and says this in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Now, what does he mean by the copies of these things? He's speaking of things that we've not really been told about yet in the book of Exodus, the Ark of the Covenant and the Tent of Meeting and the altar itself and the basin, all of those things. He's saying these are copies of the heavenly things and they are purified with these rites, with the blood of bulls and goats. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So he says that the things that are copies are sacrificed or are, are cleansed or purified with the blood of bulls and goats, but the, re, the real thing had to be sacrificed or had to be purified with a better sacrifice than this. And then he says what that is. For Christ is entered not into holy places made with hands like the tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor, he says, was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. 
For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Christ, has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. He says the, the sacrifice of Christ is not something that has to be repeated anymore. It is perfect. It atones for all things from the foundation of the world in the heart of the repentant. So we come to our table this morning knowing that the sacrifice that covered our sin and gave us fellowship with God is a settled account. It is not something that we have to worry about being taken away. It has been paid in full, and so we get to experience God in full, which leads me to this last point of celebration. Today, because of Jesus, we celebrate God's presence. When the leaders of Israel came to dine with God, they saw only the edges of his glory. But because of Jesus, John in the New Testament says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He says, we've seen what you couldn't live and see in the Old Testament. And so the presence of the glory of God that if beheld wasn't survivable in Exodus 24 is fulfilled in Jesus whose very life resides in us in us, giving us communion with God and with those who also have Christ's life residing in them. So this morning, we sit down for a meal with God and with God's people, a meal made possible because God went before us in providence and saving us in Christ before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1. A meal made possible because of the forgiveness made possible through the shed blood of Christ and a meal of fellowship with God that is made possible by that very same blood. And so as we prepare for this meal, let's go to the Lord in gratitude for his wonderful provision for us in Christ. Join me in prayer.